Hello, you're listening to Before the Act, a series of podcasts about a groundbreaking moment in theatre and social history, as told by some of the wonderful women who were there. These podcasts were made during the coronavirus lockdown, and I caught up with people I haven't spoken to in 30 years on the phone. Hello. Hello, is that Katrina? Yes, Deb, how are you? <laughs> Hello. Is that Lisa? Yes. Hiya. Hello, is that Mandy? It is, Sabbath. It is. They all have one thing in common. They witnessed the start of the fight against the notorious Section 28 and the founding of Stonewall, the organisation that would spend 15 years lobbying for its repeal. I recorded their personal memories alongside radio interviews and audio clips of real events. We rejoin our story back in the summer of 1988. It's 9.15pm on June the 5th, and we're in the Stalls Bar of the Piccadilly Theatre in London's West End. It's incredibly busy, and the audience are noisily queuing for their interval drinks. In a corner of the bar is Lisa Power. She's recently become editor of the Pink Paper, and is watching the show with a group of fellow lesbian and gay activists. I asked her about her involvement in the show. I knew Trina and Wendy through... um through the, through the London Lesbian and Gay Centre because my girlfriend was the chair of the centre, Jenny Wilson. Um, and I was just sort of a dyke about town. I was writing columns for the gay press and getting into hot water. I, I actually can pinpoint exactly the first time that I spoke to Ian McKellen. He rang the pink paper and said, I've been told to speak to Lisa Power. I'm doing um, a radio thing with Peregrine Worsthorn, and I've been told you, you know a lot about gay rights and you can tell me what I ought to say. And I thought it was a hoax call. And I was very aware that the arts lobby and the media lobby were the only people who were actually talking to the Tories and trying to to sway allies. They actually understood that we had to get straight people on our side. You know, realistically, we were starting to pull the people together who subsequently became the core of Stonewall. Lisa would go on to become one of Stonewall's founders. But we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The second half of Before the Act is about to begin. I'm Bev Eyre, stage manager of tonight's show. Myself and the crew have spent the entire interval frantically setting up the biggest sound system the Piccadilly has ever seen. The entire theatre is in a state of nervous euphoria. Mandy Short and Katrina Buchanan from the Hot Doris Band were sitting watching in the stalls. My recollection is the Pet Shop Boys did their first live gig at this show. And um, I was down in the stalls and there was a group of about maybe five, four or five young people. And they just looked so out of place with everyone else there. And I just thought, why are you here? And then, of course, oh, well, of course, they're here for the Pet Shop Boys. Their faces, obviously, just they were just incandescent when the Pet Shop Boys came on. And they opened up by saying we're not the Hot Doris Band. We're the Pet Shop Boys, by the way, in case you thought we were the Hot Doris Band. <laughs> it says in the programme that we're doing a song called It Couldn't Happen Here, but we haven't probably changed our minds. So we're going to do a song now called It's a Sin.
was a huge setup for two songs, as I discussed with Karen Parker, who was due to follow the Pet Shop Boys on stage. We, we teched it and dressed it in the daytime and then went straight into the show. We must have all been mad. I know, I and, remember. And um, I remember Ian McKellen, when he saw all the equipment arriving, saying, <laughs> I only asked them to do a song. And... <laughs> thing before had they I think it was really you know yeah. one of their first gigs really so of course they needed all that tech because they were so techno oriented it was funny continued with a young Stephen Fry there, taking over as host. Karen Parker remembers him introducing their act. We had a hairdresser sketch where um, basically uh, Debbie, as a lesbian, doesn't get a word in, so this, I'm, I'm quite a straight hairdresser who just can't stop talking. I remember that Stephen Fry introduced us. He said, it now gives me... It now gives me um, more pleasure than is legally permissible. And I just thought that was such a great, you know, thing to say before we came on. It was brilliant. Well, well, actually, it's it's my girlfriend's birthday. Hope she likes the negligee. Cost of bomb, but it's dead sexy. were regulars on the alternative cabaret circuit and known for overtly lesbian comedy. But the fear of being outed by association prevented some of the more famous writers and performers from taking part in Before the Act, as Lisa Power recalls. Ian McKellen still has the uh, the letter from Stephen Sondheim saying that he would have loved to um, have There's a Place for Us sung there, but he couldn't if it identified him as gay. 
Alan Bennett's characteristically humorous coming out during the show was particularly significant. When Ian McKellen asked me uh, if I'd have some of my uh, work done in the programme tonight, uh, he seemed a bit uncertain. Uh, <laughs> and, um, well, I'll tell you the other people whose uh, work we're doing, and, you know, W.H. Jordan and Tennessee Williams and Oscar Wilde. And I said, well, they are very distinguished. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's not quite what I meant. <laughs> had a Tony Award for her performance in A Taste of Honey on Broadway, two Golden Globes and was Oscar nominated. But like everyone else backstage, was overwhelmed and aware of the gravity of the evening. Karen Parker remembers chatting to her halfway through the second half. I stumbled into Joan Plowright backstage. She was sitting on the bed that was part of her little thing that she did. And she'd been, she was really worried that she'd messed it all up and that people didn't like it. No, you were great. You were marvellous. So funny. Everyone was really nervous and wanting, wanting it. It, it. The importance of it, I think, was really something everybody felt. Cyan Kent remembers one reason why it felt so significant. It felt like it wasn't just us anymore. It was, it was bigger than that. It wasn't just gay people. It was suddenly everyone else saying, yes, we support you. And it is always the artistic community that comes to those, comes and helps out with those sorts of, certainly elements of freedom and, and, and expression. But I think that really did make a huge difference. The evening continued with Juliet Stevenson and Sarah Kesselman playing two closeted lesbian teachers in Sarah Daniels' Neaptide, an excerpt which illustrated that in 1988 gay teachers were living in constant fear of being exposed and that Section 28 would only worsen these fears. had a very long-standing relationship, but she was killed in a car crash in 1956. There really is no need. Apparently there is. Long time ago now. Probably the year you were born. I threw myself into my work and I am aware that I sail around this place with an air of bright, bluffingly calm, occasionally desperate authority, but it is an act that I hide in. And indeed, at that time, I relied on it for the sake of my sanity. I cannot afford to get myself caught in the undertow. Do you understand? 
after the accident. She was in hospital for three weeks before she died. During that time, my presence went unacknowledged. I wasn't allowed to see her, only close family. And I was left with a sense of grief that couldn't be shared. I don't really see. So if you insist on pursuing this course of action, you really give me little alternative but to ask for your resignation. Excerpts from A Prayer for Wings by Sean Mathias, Trouble in Tahiti by Leonard Bernstein, and Songs for Ariel by Michael Tippett followed before Brookside Sue Johnson continued the lesbian theme of Act Two by introducing the penultimate performance of the night, Joanne Campbell singing Prove It On Me. I went out last night with a crowd of my friends. They must have been women. Just a double bass, piano and stool left to strike, and some chairs and a lectern to set for the finale. So for the first time, myself and the crew could actually watch the performance on stage. Exhausted, we wouldn't have believed that within 12 months we would be doing it all over again, this time at the Adelphi Theatre. After raising £11,000 from tonight's show, 20th Century Vixen joined forces with Ian McKellen, Michael Cashman, Sean Mathias and Martin Sherman to revive Bent. Featuring another all-star cast, they would raise enough funds to employ the first chief executive of the newly formed Stonewall, and the show would go on to have a successful run at the National Theatre. But at 10.15pm on June the 5th, 1988, we had little idea of the true significance of Before the Act, or its legacy. Lisa Power picks up this story. Before the Act was us finding our way into a completely new formula, which worked, which was a much more carefully controlled and defended kind of organisation, with carefully chosen members in a very small um, lobby group instead of a large, sprawling fighting organisation, and that that initiative could be funded by big arts-related events. Before the Act was the first time that we'd really tried to do that, and in a way it provided a platform for us knowing how to do it again. There was a lot of goodwill towards us that hadn't been unlocked by those of us, and I can say this because I was one of them, by those of us who wore double denim and a lot of badges and waved banners everywhere. And, you know, people love us now. We were the romantic, you know, activists who were out on the streets. But actually, we weren't getting very far with the rest of society. And Stonewall believed firmly that there was this massive hinterland 
quiet desperation of lesbians and gay men who were really pissed off by Section 28 and who were starting to be prepared to do something but didn't want to have to go out on the street with banners. They wanted to sit in an armchair and write a letter to their MP or give us 10 quid a month. That there were all these people in the arts who, following Section 28, were really sympathetic to the lesbian and gay cause. And so we had Bent, and then we had Art for Equality, which raised a complete fortune and was, was mostly Maggie Hambling strong-arming everybody in sight to hand us over a, a painting. Michael and Paul went over and charmed a painting out of Hockney, and that, that helped enormously. Nobody had tried doing that kind of thing before because we just hadn't been the kind of people who had those contacts. You know, and the equality show and then the equality dinners, all of that followed from that. I saw firsthand the power of these large-scale celebrity-driven fundraisers when in 2002, after diversifying in my own career in the charity sector, I was employed as Director of Development of Stonewall. Responsible for the organisation's fundraising, the development team, having learnt from before the act and bent, were generating over £5 per year, largely from individual donations and large-scale events. And it was whilst I was at Stonewall, under the leadership of Angela Mason, that after years of successful lobbying and legal challenges, the government finally announced their intention to repeal Section 28. And so on the 18th of November, 2003, Section 28 was repealed in England. In 2018, an apology of sorts came from Dame Jill Knight, the chief architect of Section 28, when interviewed by BBC's Newsnight. The intention was the well-being of children. And uh, if I got that wrong, well, I'm sorry. All I was trying to do was acting on what people wrote to me, said to me, um, what the papers said. And so our story naturally comes to an end. But it's not quite the end of the show. It's now 10.25pm in the Piccadilly Theatre. Alan Bates is centre stage, unaware that it will take a further 15 years to defeat a law which caused untold harm to LGBT people well into the 21st century. The laws of God, the laws of man, he may keep but will and can. Not I. Let God and man decree laws for themselves and not for me. And if my ways are not as theirs, let them mind their own affairs. Their deeds I judge as much condemned. Yet when did I make laws for them? Before the act ended with a cavalcade of stars reading love poetry by lesbian and gay authors. Judy Dench, Francesca Annis, Paul Eddington, Vanessa Redgrave, Harold Pinter, Simon Callow, Edna O'Brien, Alec McCowan and Miranda Richardson would all join Alan Bates on the stage. Country Church by Maureen Dunn. Under your name I put mine to show that we were here, coupled in the visitor's book forever. The nearest we may get to a register but for those who come lovingly after, quite clear. 
in the Garden by Sharon Barber. <laughs> One is an ex-professor of biology. The other is a stranger to us. But in their Saturday slacks and old shirts, their hair cropped like Gertrude's, we would know them anywhere. Already we are their younger counterparts. In 20 years, we will be indistinguishable. <coughs> So I will go on writing my poems, or you will take my picture, under a trellis maybe, or with bare feet propped on a patio table. And as this evening's performance comes to an end, I asked Katrina and Cyan from the Hot Doris Band why they thought this story was important. When Clause 28 was finally revoked, it felt very personal. Because it felt like, you know, we'd been there at the fight against it and, and then it got over the line. And to have, to have been sort of at the start of something where... You know, I work for a corporate organisation now and we have links with Stonewall and sometimes I want to jump up and, and say, do you know what? <laughs> 30 odd years ago, I was there when I was there at the start. That feels like quite a, um, that feels like a, a lovely legacy to be part of. like Trina and Wendy, these, these two lesbians. I mean, this is the thing. Lesbians are often written out of history, aren't they? Lesbians are really not, not given the same credibility, I think. And that these were the women who were actually behind this huge event, which then has this legacy. I, I really do think that this is very, very important historically for LGBT history, and also not only that, but protest history as well. And I'm proud to have been part of that. From a personal perspective, Before the Act had a huge effect on me as a young lesbian and professionally, and the opportunities afforded to me by Trina and Wendy have had a lasting impact. Last summer, I found myself backstage again, 
at the opening ceremony of the Netball World Cup in Liverpool. As the show's producer, it was my role to instil confidence in our young cast of dancers and performers, all in their final year of drama school and around the same age I was in 1988. I tell them about two women who gave me the opportunity of a lifetime, of the scale of their ambition and how they taught me that anything is possible. But most of all, how lucky I was just to be a part of it. So in May of 2020, I tracked down Trina Cornwell, one half of 20th Century Vixen, producer of Before the Act and Bent. And I got the opportunity to say thank you and to ask her how she remembers it. I mean, never been done since. Will never be done again, I guess. Do you, do you look back on it with a sense of pride? Yes. Yes, I do. I'd like it all to be happening now in front of me. It was an incredible experience, I think, for all of us. I think we did it right. <laughs> I think we did it right. These podcasts were made by Bevair, Tim Brunston and Lou Muddle, with the kind help and generous support of Trina Cornwell, Cyan Kent, Katrina Buchanan, Mandy Short, Karen Parker, Lisa Power and Angie West of Queer Bee Films. Before the Act was a benefit show to counter the effects of Section 28. It was devised by Michael Cashman, Sean Mathias, Ian McKellen, Stephen Oliver and Martin Sherman. It was produced by 20th Century Vixen Promotions and was directed by Richard Eyre. This is the last in our series of podcasts. If you've enjoyed them or would like to make a comment, please go to our website, beforetheactpodcast.com. And thank you for listening.